Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get, folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, 
BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Welcome, everybody, to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is Episode 3, Babylonians and Medes. Hopefully, it hasn't been too long to remember that in the first episode of this show, we followed the ancient Near Eastern world as it progressed from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, and as it was dominated by the brutal Assyrian Empire. In the last episode, we traced the origins of the Iranian tribes, including the Persians, as they went from Indo-Europeans to Indo-Iranians to just Iranians. I also gave the short narrative of the early Median Kingdom. In both, I ended with Assyria in the chaos of a civil war, and Nabopolassar, king of Babylonia, and Syaxeres, king of the Medes, planning to invade and conquer the broken empire in 616 BC. Babylon, only ten years earlier an Assyrian vassal, had been fighting against Assyria for years, trying to secure its status as an independent kingdom, but King Nabopolassar was ready to go on the offensive by 616. Whether or not he planned to completely conquer the Assyrian Empire, we cannot say, but given how readily the Babylonians expanded westward, I would venture to say yes, they did plan on conquering all of the Assyrian territory. Syaxeres and the Medes, however, cannot have had any expectation that they were about to come into control of their own empire. At this point, the Medes ruled a relatively minor kingdom in the Zagros Mountains, with a collection of vassals surrounding them to the south and east. Assyria had been engulfed by civil war and revolting vassals themselves, but before we can really address their fall, we should ask, how the hell did Assyria go from the height of its power with no rivals in sight to the brink of collapse in less than a decade? Because really, on the surface, it makes no sense at all that the greatest power in the region wasn't able to recover even a little bit from these civil wars, but Assyria would never rise to power again. From here on, they would be subjects rather than masters. We can probably attribute a lot of their fall to how much power the king himself had. An absolute monarch is great if your monarch is good at their job, but when the succession is disputed, absolute monarchies are easily thrown into disarray without a clear leader to give the orders. The second and possibly more significant factor is the Assyrian vassals and subject provinces. In episode 1, I repeatedly mentioned how kings were distracted from expansionist campaigns to deal with revolting subjects. Their heavy-handed and brutal military tactics, combined with oppressive tribute payments and taxes, made Assyrian rule intolerable to most of their subjects. So when there was no longer a strong central authority to enforce Assyrian power, they went into revolt once more. Unfortunately for the Assyrians, they had come to rely on the resources and manpower of their empire, and without tribute payments, the core of the empire was left very vulnerable. Frustratingly for modern historians, the Assyrians left us no records of their own thoughts on the collapse of their empire. The written record of the ancient Near East was almost always associated with whoever held power at the time, and native Assyrian records basically vanished from this point forward. Outside sources, such as the Babylonians, Greeks, and Hebrew Bible, do address the fall of Assyria, but they attribute it to divine retribution for Assyrian cruelty probably not what the Assyrians themselves would have said given the chance. 
So you can see how those two issues pushed Assyria right up to the edge of a cliff. But what pushed them off? Well, I would say that it was proximity to their most powerful enemies. Babylon, despite sharing its northern borders with the Assyrian heartland, had always maintained a modicum of independence. It was only 30 years before these events that Ashurbanipal had taken direct control of Babylon and smashed their Elamite allies so thoroughly that they could no longer resist Assyrian power. But a decade of Assyrian internal conflict created the opening for Nabopolassar to become the new king of Babylon, and all he had to do was march across the border and give the tottering empire a push over the edge. There wouldn't have been any time for the Assyrians to reorganize and defend themselves properly. Of course, Nabopolassar knew that even in this ruined state, the Assyrians were one of the most powerful forces in the known world. So he got help from the next strongest kingdom that shared a border with Assyria, the Medes under King Cyaxares. I have no doubt that the Medes lucked out and were the right people in the right place at the right time to be Babylon's ally in the conquest of Assyria. So let's get into what happened after the Medes and Babylonians crossed those borders. Unfortunately, there aren't detailed records of the campaigns, so we must rely on archaeology and less in-depth accounts like the Babylonian Chronicle to tell us what happened. In 616, Babylonian forces besieged the city of Nippur, located in modern south-central Iraq. They seized the city by 615, less than a year into the war with Assyria. Meanwhile, the Medes had quickly taken the cities of Arafa and Tarbisu, the former located on the site of Kirkuk, and the latter located about three miles from the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. Cyaxares and the Medes then pushed deeper into the Assyrian interior and besieged the ancient capital at Ashur, on the west bank of the Tigris River. After conquering Nippur, the Babylonians turned north to assist the Medes, but by the time they arrived in 614, Ashur had already fallen. Both invading armies turned north again where they captured a town called Kalhu, just south of modern Mosul, before turning their sights to Nineveh itself. The battle for Nineveh, from what little evidence we have for it, was brutal. The city fell in 612 BCE, after about three months of siege. The Medes and Babylonians even called on Scythian tribes from the steppe to aid them in the assault. According to the biblical book of Nahum, the invaders had to fight from building to building over the course of months. The city was looted and burned in a desolation so complete that the city was not only abandoned thereafter, but modern archaeologists have uncovered many unburied skeletons in the ruins. The Assyrian king, Sinshar Ishkun, who had emerged as the shaky victor of the civil wars, was killed in the siege. A new king, Ashar Ubalit II, was an Assyrian general and member of the royal family. He fled the city apparently during the sack. Following the sack of Nineveh, it seems Syaxares halted the bulk of his army to consolidate Median power, leaving it primarily to the Babylonians to hunt down Ashur Ubalit and the last of the Assyrian holdouts with smaller contingents of Medes and Scythians alongside them. Led by Nabopolassar's son, the crown prince Nebuchadnezzar, also called Nabukaduri Usur in Babylonian records, the Babylonians and their allies pursued Ashur Ubalit to the city of Haran in 610, near the modern city of Urfa, Turkey. The Assyrian court annals halt abruptly in 609, leading modern researchers to the conclusion that the city fell to Nebuchadnezzar in that year. King Ashur Ubalit does not appear in any of the records following the defeat at Haran, leading to the most likely conclusion being that he died as the last king of Assyria during the siege. 
Though the Assyrians were very clearly defeated after Haran, and really the writing had been on the wall since Nineveh, probably earlier, the war was not quite done. To the west, Assyria's only real ally, Pharaoh Necho II of Egypt, was on the march. The pharaoh had been educated in Assyria after Ashurbanipal installed his father on the throne of Egypt as a vassal, and he was a loyal ally to the Assyrians. The Egyptian army had departed Egypt in 609, but was held up on the road by the army of Judah, the surviving Jewish kingdom after Israel had been conquered and deported by the Assyrians. The Judahites had been made vassals of the Assyrians as well and had a long history of subjugation by the Egyptians. Thus, they made a decision that is darkly ironic in hindsight if you know your biblical history, and sided with Babylon and Media against the Egyptian army. The army of Judah, led by their king Josiah, met Necho II at the Pass of Megiddo to fight one of the many battles fought on that site throughout history. Details of this particular battle of Megiddo are scarce, but two important details do emerge in both the biblical and secular accounts. Necho II was victorious, and King Josiah was slain in the battle. Despite the victory, the battle in Judah delayed the pharaoh long enough that he was unable to relieve the Assyrians at Haran. Necho and the Egyptian force continued north and rallied with the remaining Assyrian forces at the city of Carchemish, on the border of Anatolia and Syria. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army pursued the Assyrians to their Egyptian allies, reaching them in 605 BCE. Nebuchadnezzar's campaign of 605 was the final nail in the coffin for both Assyria as a polity and Egypt as a major player in the Near East. He dealt swift defeat to the Egyptians at Carchemish, where, according to the Babylonian Chronicle for that year, not one man escaped. Of course, such total victories are rare, and given that there was one more confrontation recorded by the same chronicle after Carchemish, we should probably take that proclamation with a grain of salt. Nebuchadnezzar's last battle for the time being was at the city of Hamath, south of Carchemish in Syria, where he once again defeated and routed the Egyptian army. The Battle of Hamath is mentioned only briefly by both the Babylonian Chronicle and the Bible, and neither places Pharaoh Necho himself at the site of the battle, so it's possible that this was just a contingent of a larger Egyptian force. Regardless of exactly what kind of Egyptian army was defeated at Hamath, that was it, the end. Assyria, only 20 years past its peak, was gone, and the crown prince Nebuchadnezzar had extended the territory of Babylon from the eastern edge of Mesopotamia to the Mediterranean coast. He incorporated old Assyrian provinces into his father's empire, and forced the old Assyrian vassals in the Levant, including the Phoenicians and Judah, to become vassals to Babylon as well. And though he would continue to expand the newfound Neo-Babylonian empire in time, he had to halt his army for the moment and rush back to Babylon. Not long after the Egyptians had been defeated, Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, had died, forcing Nebuchadnezzar to return to the capital and become King Nebuchadnezzar II. So once again, the paradigm of Near Eastern history has shifted. In just 20 years, we've gone from Assyria with Egypt as its ally, to Assyria fractured with Babylon on the rise, to Babylon and Media as the new ultimate powers in the region, and for the most part, that would be the status quo for the next 55 years until Cyrus the Great and the Persians sweep over the whole region and change everything again. The alliance between Babylon and Media was sealed with a marriage. Syaxares' daughter Amatis was married to Nebuchadnezzar, and according to later historians, 
Her homesickness for the Zagros Mountains prompted Nebuchadnezzar to order the construction of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon as a way to make her more comfortable. Despite the resounding success of the alliance of Babylon and Media and their original goal of conquering the Assyrians, Amatus's homesickness should not be all that surprising. Beyond the obvious geographical difference between the Zagros Mountains and the lowland floodplains of southern Mesopotamia, the Medes and Babylonians were radically different peoples. The Babylonians were the self-proclaimed heirs of ancient Bronze Age Mesopotamia. They resuscitated the long-dead language of Sumerian and retained the dying Akkadian language as their primary official script, despite the fact that Aramaic had been the dominant language in the region for centuries at this point. They even went so far as to change the official royal cuneiform system of writing so that it would look more like Akkadian script from 1500 years earlier. They incorporated stock phrases from that time as well into their inscriptions. However, they were not entirely stuck in the past, and embarked on a slew of building projects revitalizing huge tracts of agricultural land as well as expanding cities across their new empire. The extant sources for Nebuchadnezzar's reign reflect this Mesopotamian renaissance, so to speak. Gone I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch, and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today, are the gory accounts of glorious Assyrian conquests and the destruction of their enemies. Now those records are supplanted almost entirely by accounts of the extravagant Babylonian architectural projects and the reverent religious records of temples either expanded or founded by the new dynasty. This was the time period that set up Babylon as the jewel of the ancient world, coveted by conquerors like Cyrus and Alexander and revered by foreigners who marveled at the stories of its wealth and splendor. The Greek account Herodotus gave two centuries later describes the city and its customs with admiration for its wealth and achievements. Historians refer to the Babylonian Empire of this time period as either the Neo-Babylonian Empire or the Chaldean Empire. 
Neo-Babylonian, like Neo-Assyrian, contrasts with the Bronze Age kingdom centered on Babylon. Chaldean refers to the tribal or ethnic identity of Nabonidus and tries to differentiate this dynasty's origins from the native Babylonians who had ruled the city for much of its history up to this point. Personally, I prefer Neo-Babylonian as I think it matches thematically with the idea of a sort of renaissance in ancient Mesopotamian culture, and it fits nicely with the naming schema of Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Hittite and other Neo-cultures that historians talk about in the ancient Near East. But just because it was a time of prosperity for Mesopotamia does not mean that we should mistake it for a time of complete peace. Short accounts of Nebuchadnezzar's wars are found on a few inscriptions, but primarily within the Babylonian Chronicle, a year-by-year account of the major events in and around the empire. It is in here that we get accounts of Nebuchadnezzar returning to the west after donning his father's crown in 605. Apparently suffering from a serious case of new boss same as the old boss, various states in Assyria and the Levant revolted against their new Babylonian rulers over the course of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. The most famous of these revolts were in Judah and Tyr, both formerly vassals to the Assyrians, and it is in these revolts that we see Babylon using many of the same brutal tactics used by the Assyrians to suppress their enemies. In events described by both the Bible and the Babylonian Chronicle, the Judahite king Yekoniah refused to pay tribute to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem at the head of an army in late 598, putting the city to a three-month siege. Once captured, Nebuchadnezzar took the notables of the city, including King Yekoniah, and all of the useful craftsmen and deported them to other parts of the empire, including the capital. He installed a new king, Zedekiah, to rule Judah and pay tribute to Babylon. However, a decade later, Nebuchadnezzar found himself at the head of another army once again laying siege to the walls of Jerusalem, this time with Zedekiah leading the revolt. This time, when Nebuchadnezzar broke through the gates, his army sacked the city and destroyed the great temple to Yahweh built on the mountain in the center. Nearly all of the city's inhabitants were deported back to Babylonia. Zedekiah and a small retinue managed to flee the city but were captured by the Babylonians outside of Jericho, and they too were deported. Thereafter, Judah became the Babylonian province of Yehud, to be ruled by governors appointed and accountable to the king of Babylon himself. This marks the start of the Babylonian captivity, a formative event in Jewish history that we will actually revisit when it is ended by Cyrus the Great in the Persian conquest of Babylon decades later. The second famous rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar was in the Phoenician city of Tyr. The Phoenicians had generally been happy to be left alone and pay tribute to the Assyrians, but Tyr, perhaps feeling confident that they could outlast their enemy because they were located on a famously hard-to-invade island, repeatedly halted tribute payments and earned the wrath of the Assyrians. Maybe they thought they had learned from their past defeats or had prepared to outlast any siege, but the Tyrians vastly underestimated Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian siege of Tyr lasted for 13 years, from 586 to 573. The Babylonian Chronicle, as always, is lacking in detail, and there is not an equivalent to the biblical account that we have for the sieges of Jerusalem, but once Tyr was incorporated as a full province of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, it would not resist a king or conqueror for over 200 years until the arrival of Alexander the Great. Why Nebuchadnezzar was so harsh and driven by this conquest and occupation in the Levant, we might never know. 
The most likely scenario put forward by historians is that he was planning to invade Egypt, but that war never came. There were a few border disputes and skirmishes, but the Babylonians seemed to have settled on a border in the Sinai Peninsula and left it at that. For the remainder of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar would direct minor campaigns and put down rebellions to enforce tribute payments in the West, but overall his reign was actually peaceful, at least by the former Assyrian standard. Nebuchadnezzar II died in 562 BC. He had been king of Babylon for 43 years. He led the final conquest of Assyria and worked tirelessly to establish Babylonia in its place as the foremost power of the Near East. His succession was also messy and chaotic. Because the internal political intrigues of Babylon did not draw the interest of contemporary foreign sources and had little to do with monumental building projects or temples, we are left reliant on what little can be gleaned from the Babylonian chronicles and a few other written sources to describe the next three kings of Babylon, all of whom came in very quick succession. They were of so little consequence, in the end, that the book I've been drawing a lot of my pre-Persian research from covers them in a single sentence. Quote, Three kings ruled for a total of six years only, and two of them were assassinated. End quote. And that's all the book has to say on those three kings. First came Amel Marduk, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, who is known entirely through outside sources. There are no Babylonian cuneiform sources recording anything about him. He is fortunately recorded in the Uruk Kings list, along with the other Babylonian kings, and apparently some record of him survived into the later Hellenistic period after the conquest of Alexander, as he is addressed by the later Babylonian chronicler Barosis, who informs us that he was assassinated and implies that his death was ordered because of a poorly received religious reform. He is also mentioned briefly in the Bible as the king who released the former Judahite king Yechaniah from prison and gave him a position in the royal court. M.L. Marduk ruled for just about two years before his assassination brought Nurgal Sherezar to the throne. The new king was one of Nebuchadnezzar's sons-in-law, and apparently played some part in the death of Amel Marduk's son, who would have otherwise been the successor. Nurgal Sherezar is noted for one of the few major Babylonian conquests after Nebuchadnezzar. He completed the subjugation of Cilicia, the former Assyrian province that had resisted Babylonian rule and become one of the leading city-states in southwestern Anatolia. The second of these three kings' reign, according to the surviving records, lasted for three years and three months before he died of apparently natural causes. His son, Labshi Marduk, succeeded him. Nebuchadnezzar's third successor lasted for only nine months before a conspiracy of high-ranking court members had him assassinated. The apparent leader of the conspirators, and new king of Babylon, was Nabonidus, called Nabunaid in his Akkadian inscriptions. Little of Nabonidus's background has come down to us. The name of his wife, Nidocris, is given to us by Herodotus, but it is unclear how the Greek historian came by that information. Historians hypothesize that Nidocris, if that even resembles the actual queen's name, was a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, which would lend him the legitimacy he needed when he claimed the throne. We also actually know the identity of his mother, Adad Gupi, a priestess of the moon god Sheen from the city of Haran, where the Assyrians had made their last stand against Nebuchadnezzar. Nabonidus would inherit his mother's devotion to Sheen, a devotion which would eventually develop into a major rift with his subjects. However, that is a story for the next episode. 
as Nabonidus will be the final king of Babylon before it was incorporated into the Persian Empire. We will now turn back to the Medes. While Nebuchadnezzar was solidifying his grip on most of the former Assyrian Empire, Cyaxares was solidifying his control over the northern edge of Mesopotamia and Syria while annexing many of his new neighbors. Much less is known about the Medes than the Babylonians. Prior to becoming a major political empire in the Near East, they had no written tradition that we can identify, and their wealth was likely dependent on trade along the Khorasan Road trade route connecting them to East Asia and India. Cyaxares annexed the region of Urartu, either after the Armenians had arrived there or as they were moving in. The Medes then pushed further into Cappadocia in northern Anatolia, where they conquered until they reached the Halys River, called the Kizil Ermak in modern Turkish. On the other side of the Halys was the kingdom of Lydia. Lydia had been a relatively minor player for most of the Assyrian period, when the major player in that region was the kingdom called Phrygia. Phrygia had resisted Assyrian conquest mostly on the virtue of extreme wealth that it was able to accrue from the area's rich deposits of electrum, an alloy of gold and silver. They became so wealthy that they later inspired the Greek myth of King Midas and his golden touch. However, Phrygia was destroyed in the same Sumerian and Scythian invasions that crippled Urartu around 695 BCE. Lydia stepped in to fill the vacuum left in the collapse of the Phrygians and became extraordinarily wealthy by exploiting the same electrum deposits. Eventually, the Lydians are believed to have used that electrum to mint the world's first coinage currency. When Cyaxares arrived on the Halys River in 585 BC, his Lydian counterpart was Aliates, coincidentally believed to be the ruler who minted those first coins. The Lydian expansion had brought them into contact with the Greek world of western Anatolia and the Aegean Sea. Through this contact, Lydian sources were passed through the Greek world, enabling Herodotus to give an account of the conflict between the Lydians and the Medes in his history. He tells us that the Medes had employed Scythian raiders from north of the Black Sea, either as vassals or mercenaries, but one day they returned from their raids empty-handed. Cyaxares was so enraged, he killed a slave boy he had given to the Scythians, cooked him, and served him to his now former mercenaries for dinner. Understandably upset by this, the Scythians fled across the Halys River, where they were given King Aliates' protection. This, according to Herodotus, provoked a five-year war between Media and Lydia. Now, Herodotus's use of the crazed king serving a young boy to his supplicants as punishment is a common trope in ancient literature, and we can probably dismiss it as fiction. Whether or not Scythians in the employ of Media switching sides actually provoked the war, we can probably never know. Personally, I would lean towards saying that it was not the cause, but is possibly based on a real event. The most likely explanation would be that Lydia was the next rival on the Median frontier. However, even if Herodotus's description of how the war started is a little bit dicey, his description of how it ends is actually echoed by other sources and can even be precisely dated using modern astronomy of all things. Herodotus tells us that after five years of warfare, the Medes and Lydians organized for a battle along the Halys River, and during the fighting, the day turned into night. Both sides took the event for an omen and called an end to the fighting to negotiate a settlement. The idea of day turning into night is mentioned occasionally in ancient history and can almost always be matched to a known solar eclipse. This one was May 28, 585 BCE, and thus becomes one of the postmarks that we can use to accurately date surrounding events. 
A treaty and a border on the Halys River were negotiated by Syaxres and Aliates, with the kings of Cilicia and Babylon acting as mediators. To seal the agreement, Aliates gave his daughter, Arianus, to become the wife of Syaxres' son and heir, Astyages, known as Ishtivegu in Babylonian records. Babylonian records also tell us that Syaxares' Medes were carrying out a campaign far to the east in Iran or Afghanistan simultaneous with the war in Lydia, but no more details about that war have come down to us. It is possible that it was just further eastward expansion, or just maybe bringing some rebellious vassals back into line. Not long after the settlement between Media and Lydia, King Syaxares died, and Astyages rose to the Median throne. But that is where we will end today's story, because like Nabonidus in Babylon, the major event of Astyages' reign will be the downfall of his empire at the hands of an upstart Persian king named Cyrus II. I will see you in two weeks. Until then, you can find more information about the show and maps for this episode at historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. New episodes will also be available there or wherever it is you get your favorite podcast. If there's somewhere you don't see the show, feel free to let me know and I'll see what I can do to get the show up there as well. And you can contact me with suggestions and feedback either on the website or at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on social media. On Facebook, it's The History of Persia, plain and simple. And on Twitter, I am at History of Persia, capital H, capital P, no the. Hopefully you enjoyed the show today and are excited that we're finally going to get around to some real Persians. So tell a friend, share on social media, and leave a review on iTunes to help me get the word out that the History of Persia podcast is definitely here. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
marketing, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.